And as you're turning, let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, that somehow your words would get through here today to each one of us, that we would experience your wisdom from your words, so that we might understand everything you have for us in your scripture. That as you speak to us through your word, Lord, that we would be strengthened and encouraged and we'd be drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And in Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Now, first of all, Luke 24. Luke only has 24 chapters, so we're at the end of an account of the life of Jesus. In Luke 24, he is risen from the dead. So everything that has come before that, you have a general idea. Luke 24, verse 13. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. By today's maps, we know where Emmaus is and where Jerusalem is. It's about seven miles. So what takes place now are these two guys walking seven miles to Emmaus. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And a lot of things had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger? Or really the translation means, Art thou the only stranger in Jerusalem? And hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? Because what has taken place was so well known that of the life of Jesus, then they falsely convicted him, tortured him, crucified him, buried him. Then he was raised the third day. Jesus was on every radio spot, every TV interview, every billboard. It was all about Jesus. So, these people want to know, are you the only stranger in this entire town? How could you not know what's going? And if you've ever wondered, does God have a sense of humor? Without question, he does. Look at Jesus' answer, verse 19. Because it's all about him. And he said unto them, what things? Of course he knows. It happened to him, even if it hadn't happened to him. He's God Almighty, he knows everything there is to know. But what does he want? He wants them to just keep talking. What do you know? What things have happened? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Now the next five verses, pay attention to, be sensitive to the detail that these two guys give to Jesus about what has just taken place in the last days and weeks leading up to this walk. Look at how they summarize the life and the ministry of Jesus. Verse 20, How the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying, 
that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. There's a lot of details in there about the experiences of the previous six chapters or so, where Jesus is taken before the rulers. They, it's a show trial. They falsely convict him. He is put to death. He's buried. He's resurrected. They recount some of their, their own people, the disciples and the women first, that went to the tomb early in the day. They saw the vision of angels, as, as these guys put it. They recount all this. It's a lot of detail just to tell somebody who's walking along with you. Look at Jesus' response after all that information. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You know, in a sense, he is, he's almost condemning them a little bit that, yeah, you got all those details, but there's a lot you don't got. Are you guys that slow? You don't believe everything that the prophets have spoken? And maybe, I, I guess I forgot to say, the title of this, Jesus on Every Page. Because what Jesus then says, verse 26, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things, and to enter into his glory, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is, this is remarkable. I often think, I'm a big, uh, you know, I grew up in the 80s, and the movie Back to the Future kind of grabs my imagination. I could go back in time in the Bible, this would be one time. I would want to hear what exactly Jesus did when he expounded in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now remember, it's a seven mile walk. This story tells us when they get to the end of the seven miles, they're still chatting. Jesus is still talking to them. They break off, they want to go into where they have reached their destination. The Bible says Jesus was going to keep on going. He has a lot to expound. See, he's on every page. And not just where we use his name in the New Testament, Jesus of Nazareth. He's all throughout the Old Testament. And this is fascinating. And quite honestly, we need to know these things, if we really, biblically speaking, or if we're going to know Jesus, it seems like Jesus draws attention to, the, to us, the reader, to these two guys walking with him. He draws attention about himself to where? Or where does he glean information from? If he points people to learn about him, he points them to Moses and all the prophets. What is that? Do you have a, a, a visual picture? What When someone says Moses and all the prophets, the Old Testament, the book of Moses, the books of Moses is what they used to call the first five. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then all the prophets. There's a bunch of those, a lot of tiny little ones that we don't even pronounce their names right. The Bible says he went through all of that to tell these guys, yeah, that was me. What goes through your head when you hear about that? When you picture Jesus walking in sandals for seven miles telling these guys, what stories do you think he went to? As Bible 
believers, we kind of study the Bible. We spend one day a week in here studying it. There should be some things that pop into our head. Now, there are some very subtle things in the scriptures that it takes somebody who has spent a good deal of time learning about it, piecing it together, but there's some major stuff. There's some major stories that just clearly neon flash. That's talking about Jesus. That's clearly a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. What comes to your mind? It says Isaiah, and we're not going to start that far down. We are going to start Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We'll mention that, yes, Isaiah is a great response. We'll do a little bit of maybe chronological order here. Because let's just go through and see if we can't paint a little bit of picture. Because you, you guys know me. I love looking at the plan of God. How he put all this together. And that's what Jesus seems to be doing with those two guys on the road to Emmaus. He went back to the beginning and he started the plan of God in all the scriptures, the thing that talked about himself. If we're too warm, somebody knocked that thing down a couple of degrees. So Genesis chapter 3, what's the context? We know where we're at here. Adam and Eve are in the garden. God has told them we got all these trees, but that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't touch it. If you do, the day that you do, you're going to die. We know the story. They ate of it. Spiritually, they died. So God comes to them in the garden. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord God said unto who? That's right. Remember who's all there. There's three individuals that God is talking to. Adam, Eve, and the serpent. We... I'm telling you, you talk to people long enough and you come to realize most people, they don't read that in it. They think Adam and Eve were there. The serpent was there. God said unto the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And he's still talking to him. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between Thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God, in those two verses, talking to Satan, is saying, Someday something is going to come from this woman. The seed of the woman is what God titled it as. And he, he's going to bruise your head. And from that moment on, early, very early in the Bible, I'm on page 7 in my Bible, from that moment on, you can see... Satan's hand trying to do what to the seed of the woman? Destroy it. Destroy it. Corrupt it. Somehow get God's plan off the rails so that seed can never get here to hurt him. Because the next thing that happens is Cain kills Abel. Two kids. And it just continues to go that way. It gets so bad, God in the time of Noah wipes the earth clean to start over. But right here, the seed of the woman. If we're Bible scholars, that, that phrase should just trigger a story. The seed of the woman. That's the phrase God used. And it's pretty close. Most people kind of agree that's the earliest mention of 
a Savior of Jesus, of the Messiah, coming into the earth. This is where God lets the world know, and he even lets, I mean, he's directly talking to Satan. See, Satan knows God's got a plan. This shows you the futility that even Satan has trying to thwart it. God let him in on it, of what's coming. And he still can really do nothing to stop it. The seed of the woman. There's something else indicated in here, and we, we've talked about this a little bit before. Women don't have seed, technically speaking. And the Bible's kind of technical. I mean, I, I honestly, I, I try to make people sensitive to every word in the Bible. It has meaning. Women have an egg that is fertilized by the seed of the man. But what's this a hint at? Virgin birth. That there would be no seed of an earthly man to create, to bring this Messiah into the earth. Right there is a picture that it would all be up to the woman. Because the Bible seems to indicate that when Adam and Eve fell, there's this original sin that came unto all of us. And when the Messiah was to come into this earth, he was to be the perfect lamb, spotless, without blemish, without sin. Seed of the woman. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22. There's a big one. When we say Genesis 22, something really should pop into our head because this is another big one. Abraham, the biggest character in the Old Testament, he offers his son Isaac. Of course, the whole backdrop of that story is Abraham and Sarah can't have kids. He's very old, he and Sarah, and just through a total miracle, they have a child. Isaac's name even means laughter. They were laughing at the idea that we can have kids. And when he does come, it's a laughter of relief and a laughter of, of just joy that we can't believe this has happened. So Isaac comes, and in Genesis 22, God tells Abraham, all right, we got him here, and you're not expecting this, but you go offer, you go sacrifice Isaac at a place that I, God, will tell you about. Remarkable story. I never thought we'd get to this point, but here in the last year of my life, I've read in some publications, in some Christian circles, the people of the Christian faith, they say they hate this story. Because it's God condoning child sacrifice? Of course not. That's not the point of this story because we know what happens here, don't we? Abraham goes up there and he has a knife. And before they even get to that point, Isaac's looking around the sun. He says, Dad, we have the fire, we got the knife, we got the wood. Where's the sacrifice? What animal are we going to sacrifice? And that's in verse number 8. Abraham says, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. See, if you're a good English student, there's a couple ways to read that. God will provide himself a lamb. You could take that as he's going to give Isaac and Abraham a lamb to sacrifice. There's another way that that English reads. God will provide himself as a sacrifice. That's contained in that language. And what you'll learn when you really study this story, 
Abraham figures something out. When it's all said and done, he knows he's acting out a future event, a prophecy, a picture of what? A father sacrificing his son. It's amazing. This Abraham, what a story here. So in verse 9, they came to a place which God had told him of. It was a specific location. And we could go through biblically if we took about seven extra minutes and we could show that this is the same place where Jesus is cross. Same mountain. Because it tells us, in the early part of this, it's the land called Moriah. You keep going through the Old Testament and when David is going to build the temple, that, well actually that Solomon builds, it tells us it was on Mount Moriah. And when you get into the New Testament, you keep tracing that word, tracing that word. It's, it's a little hill in Jerusalem where the cross of Jesus, that means that he was sacrificed the same place that this story takes place. So, verse 10, Abraham stretched forth his hand, took the knife to slay his son, and the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for I now know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Now here it is. Abraham lifted up his eyes. He looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering in the stead, or in place, of his son. What's that a picture of? That's a picture of Jesus dying in the place of you and me and the person sitting next to you. The picture of substitution. Somebody, mankind, and Isaac is the son. It's a picture of mankind having somebody, something, take the place on that sacrificial altar. And now look at, after hearing that, after learning this, look at verse 14. Because of that, Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. Now that means provider. Provider of what? It is a provider of everything, and in this specific case, he's providing a sacrifice that pays for everything. That blood sacrifice. Look at what Abraham says. He named it that why. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, when will it be seen? It says it shall be. Is that present? Future? That's future. Abraham named the place Jehovah Jireh because he's saying that in the future it's going to be seen right here. See, that, that gives, it's an eye-opening discovery right there of the mind of Abraham. He, he now knows. He knows that what he is acting out, even though I'm sure he was very nervous at the time, now that it's over and he sees this ram, it's a substitution. He's going to go into the place of my son. He now knows. This is a picture of what God is going to do someday. And not only that, he's going to do it on the very same spot. Remember, remember why we're going here. Jesus said he taught those disciples all the things in the scriptures concerning him. That's what this is a picture of. 
Let's go back to the New Testament. Go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, because there's just a little more evidence we need to throw into the pot here by the words of Jesus about that story we just read. If they didn't turn that temperature down, knock it down a couple degrees. John chapter 8, and look at verse 56. Jesus having a heated discussion with the Pharisees of his day, and here he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced. He was happy. He was thrilled to see my day. Think think of that. Abraham was 2,000 years prior to Jesus. And he didn't live the length of Methuselah plus another 1,000 years. He died way back then. He was only 175 years old when he died, only. But it was way back then. Just 2,000 years later, Jesus comes along. He says, Abraham saw my day. Well, when was that? When did Abraham visually see Jesus' day? When he was up on that mountain. And it says he named that place that God's going to provide because in this mountain it shall be seen. That That Abraham, he went to his death knowing quite a bit about the plan of God. Can you see that? Even he knew God's going to act this out himself. He said God will provide himself a lamb. And boy, did he ever. The Lamb of God. Let's go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus we, chapter 12. We can't leave out the Passover. Now, of course, this is by no means an exhaustive list. We're just trying to hit maybe some of the big ones. And we're studying maybe what Jesus might have went through the scriptures with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. Exodus chapter 12. And what's this story? Moses has been sent back to Egypt to bring the Israelites out of slavery and out of bondage. He didn't even want to go. He said, I, I, I can't speak very well. <laughs> There's no way I'll do it. Pharaoh is not going to listen to me. And God convinces him with some signs. And he says, take Aaron, he'll be your mouthpiece. Moses goes back and God works these amazing miracles that no other human beings in the history of planet Earth have ever seen. Than what the Egyptians, the Israelites, and Moses and Aaron saw back during this time. The ten plagues. The water turns to blood. It rains hailstones of fire. There's the plague of lice, the plague of frogs, the plague of darkness. It just kept going on and on. Nobody had seen anything like this. One of those would have scared all of us into doing anything God said. But the Bible tells us he hardened Pharaoh's heart to make sure that he could pour it all out. He didn't want Pharaoh just to say, I give up, take him. He wanted to show, the Bible says, his Mighty hand. And so they saw amazing stuff. But the last one, the last plague is this, Exodus chapter 12. Verse 1, The Lord spake to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, said, This month shall be to you the beginning of months. Verse 3, Speak unto you all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, take to every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Verse 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. And he goes on to give these instructions. 
And here we are, we're back to that image again that we just had with Abraham and Isaac. They, caught a, they took a ram that was caught and they sacrificed it. Here, God is starting to narrow down the requirements, the image of this sacrifice. Because he's already introduced to the world through Abraham and Isaac that someday what's going to happen? Father is going to sacrifice his son. It's going to look like a lamb. And here in Exodus chapter 12, God lays out this very detailed picture of what had to be done to the lamb. Now for our purposes here, because we're directly trying to put this image on Jesus, look at verse 22. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood. The blood is what they caught from the lamb when they slit his throat. You shall dip a bunch of hyssop in the blood that is in the basin and strike it on the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until morning. Strange instructions. But this is what they're supposed to do. See, God paints a lot of pictures. Sometimes the people going through it don't even know what they're doing. Don't even know why they're doing it. The way God works, though, he's got about a couple thousand years down the road in mind. And he's painting a picture for the world. These, these Israelites in Egypt, they caught a lamb. Had to be perfect, no spot. In other words, no sin. Nothing wrong with him. And what they do to him? Just pet him? Just feed him? No. They killed it. And they caught the blood. And it's very specific. It's blood. Take the blood and they put it on the doorposts. And then once you did that, stay in your house. Specifically, don't leave it. Stay underneath the blood. And the instructions were, verse 23, here's why, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood... Upon the lintel and the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. So this is where the phrase Passover comes from. That the death angel arrived at a house and as long as the door was covered in blood, the death angel passed over it and went to somebody else. And he kept doing that until he found a house that had no blood on it. No lamb's blood. And what happened in that house? The firstborn, the oldest, in that house died. God was painting a picture for the Israelites and for future generations. What protects you? What saves you? What does God look at when he sees us? He's searching for something. Has blood been applied to our life? This is why Jesus wasn't strangled. It's why he wasn't poisoned. It's why he wasn't pushed off of a cliff. It's why he wasn't starved to death in a cell. Blood had to be shed. It was a picture for thousands of years in the Old Testament so that the people that saw it would recognize, I know know what's happening there. That lamb being slain, his blood being splattered, We're supposed to apply it to us. So this is what happened in this time in Exodus chapter 12. 
the death angel that night went through and all of Israel had blood on their door and they were miraculously protected. But all Egypt was the last straw. They went to Pharaoh, their leader, they begged him. They said, you get these people out of here or God, their God will kill every one of us. And they ended up begging the Israelites to leave. It's quite a turnaround. And when Israel left, they were not sick. They took the, a lot of the jewelry, the money of the Egyptians. They plundered them and they left with everything. They were slaves one day and the next day because of what? Lamb's blood. Everything had been made whole. What a picture. Now how long was Israel supposed to do that? Because God, after giving them these instructions, He says, you do this forever throughout your generations. So this is page 95 in my Bible. Count how many pages you have to go to to get back to Luke, say, 21. Luke 21, New Testament. Luke chapter 21. I have to go through about 1,200 pages of Bible history. A lot of things happen. A lot of time has passed. 15, 1,600 years and what's taking place in Luke chapter 21. Look at verse, uh, Luke chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called what? The Passover. So what are they doing in Jesus' time? They're still doing exactly what God taught them way back in Egypt. They're sacrificing the Passover lamb. And of course you remember, Jesus tells his disciples, because the disciples say, Master, where should we eat the Passover tonight? They're good Jewish guys. They know tonight it's the Passover. They do it on a specific day. We've got to do it. Jesus gives them instructions. They go find this room and they have the Passover with Jesus. And what happens that night? Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested. And the next day, he's killed. Same day, the same time, the priests are killing the Passover lamb in the temple. There's no coincidence. When Jesus tells those guys in the road to Emmaus, that whole Old Testament spoke about me, it was a picture of me. Even in their lifetime, he can point to, remember last week, the Passover was killed. That was me, boys. You keep reading in your New Testament, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that even Christ is our Passover, and he's sacrificed for us. This is why we don't do a Passover sacrifice. Jesus fulfilled that stuff. I mean, if you really did it and you thought you were trying to be apply God's law, you would be saying, well, Jesus' sacrifice wasn't good enough for me. So, we look at the pictures that we have throughout our Old Testament. Seed of the woman, God says someday something's coming from him. You have the story of Abraham offering Isaac. It's a father offering his son as a sacrifice, and there's a substitution up there on that mountain. The ram gets put on the altar instead of the son, the person. The Passover story in Exodus, it narrows down even to the, the, the exact requirements of what had to be done to that sacrifice. You know, there were things they couldn't do to that sacrifice. You couldn't break a bone of it. 
You couldn't leave any of it until the morning. You know why? This is what happened to Jesus on the cross. The Bible specifically tells us they came, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, they were going to break his legs to make sure he was dead on the cross. And the Bible stops to say they didn't break his legs so that the scripture might be fulfilled, a bone of his shall not be broken. Because that's what happened here. Back in Exodus. Nothing's left overnight. They went and took Jesus down off the cross. They got him off of that thing. He, he fulfilled. He was an exact picture of the Passover lamb. Let's go to Numbers chapter 21. This is a strange one. In Numbers chapter 21, a very strange event where, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the children of Israel have once again kind of complained, they murmured, and the Bible says that God sent serpents among them and they bit the Israelites to the point that some of them died. It was a mess. And they go and they complain to Moses and Moses goes to God and says, what do we do? And God tells him, verse 7, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he would take the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it, shall live. Really strange. A pole and a brass serpent. Well, it always comes to mind that the American Medical Association has this as their emblem. You ever noticed what their, what's the word? I'm sorry? The word, I never heard that word. The, the picture for the American Medical Association is this pole with a serpent wrapped around a snake. And it comes from this. Now it tells us in verse 9, Moses made the serpent of brass, put it on a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, strange. Here's what's even adds to the strangeness. From here, all the way out the rest of the Bible, you know how many mentions of this thing there are? It basically just disappears. It tells us in one, many years later, one of the kings in Israel finally destroyed this thing because the people were kind of worshiping it. And it spends two verses telling you that. And other than that, we have no commentary. We don't, why would God include this? Except when you get to John chapter 3. Let's go to the New Testament where Jesus is talking. John chapter 3. Three. How did it get so hot in here? John chapter 3 and verse 14. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
from Numbers 21 up until this point, there's really no explanation of why God did this strange thing to give Moses an instruction. Just make a brass pole, would you? Put a snake on it, lift it up in the air. Well, you get to Jesus and he explains it as, it was a picture of me. Because it hadn't happened yet in John chapter 3, but what's Jesus saying? Just as Moses did that, when I am lifted up off the earth, on a pole, on the cross, all men will look unto me. So you're just two verses, one verse away from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that, of course, is talking about the crucifixion, the paying, the penalty for sin. Remember what we're doing here. Jesus telling those two disciples on the road to Emmaus that every page is about me. And it tells us that on a seven-mile journey, he went through, it says, all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us he went to these highlights. John is taking some, what's the word, some leeway to assume maybe that these are kind of the big ones. I kind of like, my mind kind of assumes that these are some of the places that he went. But he could have been going to Psalm 22, where it describes in detail somebody on a cross, somebody being pierced. We could go to Isaiah 53 that was mentioned that describes a suffering servant where the iniquities, the sins of the world are laid on one person and that person is just tortured. Jesus went through the scriptures. And let's go back to Luke 24 now, where we were, and let's end with one verse. Luke chapter 24 Later that evening, Jesus is with all the disciples. And in Luke 24, verse 44, he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. And what's that talking about? Jesus, that whole Old Testament all those things, they were written about me. And after describing them, then what happens to the disciples? Next verse. Then. If you write in your Bible, I would encourage you, underline or circle the word, then. It was after that. After he showed himself throughout the Old Testament, what happened for the disciples? All of a sudden... They understood the Bible. They understood the Old Testament, something that they probably had memorized in many places. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. What do you think about 21st century Christians? If we want to understand the Bible, got to. Sometimes it seems to us, because of our way that we, we want to put project unto God, well, if he wanted me to know something, he would just give me an index exactly the way I think about it. He would write it the way I want to be written. But God doesn't do that. He writes it the way he wants it. And you know how he teaches mankind? 
He starts at the beginning. This is what Jesus did with those disciples. He took them back to the beginning. And it says in all the scripture. I don't think that that's teasing. I don't think that that's taking liberty with language. I think Jesus went through it all to show this is where I was in the scriptures. And the Bible says then, now all of a sudden, these disciples who had been with him already three years, they ate with him, lived with him, listened to him teach, they didn't get it then. The Bible tells us that they didn't understand the whole idea of him dying for sins, being resurrected the third day, even though Jesus had told them it was coming. When did they understand? They understood the scriptures when Jesus took them back from the beginning and showed them God's plan in action. Pictures of substitutionary death. Pictures of someday something coming through the seed of the woman, probably. Coming down to the picture of the Passover where a lamb has to be sacrificed for people. That blood has to be shed. His own testimony, the serpent in the wilderness, just as Moses lifted it up, I've got to be lifted up. He almost always took the reader's attention back to an Old Testament story, showed him where he was, and then brought it forward of, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. You guys know this, it's a pet peeve of mine, for, for church folk to say, well, we don't need the Old Testament. Or to say something like, I don't worship the God of the Old Testament, I just follow Jesus. So what we want to be sensitive to is this idea. There is, we, we put a break between the Old and New Testament, but God really doesn't. They explain each other. It's really ridiculous to try to look at one half of it and get to know God that way. You can't. You can know some things about Him. You're not going to biblically know our God without knowing both the beginning and the end. And I will tell you, as for one, to me it's fun to learn to have it kind of revealed God's whole plan. That Old Testament stuff, some of it is very strange the first time you read it. But then when you, if you keep reading, and you keep reading that serpent on the pole, that's exactly what would happen to Jesus being lifted up off the earth. When it starts to make sense and you put it all together, you get such an appreciation for it. This God of ours is pretty patient working out his plan for 6,000 years. He's pretty good at this. The Bible tells us he speaks the end from the beginning. In other words, what happens at the beginning, the end is contained in that. It's like a little seed growing out. just keeps reproducing itself all the way to the end. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that the things that we read in your word, that they would be real to us. Lord, give us a love for the word, for your scripture, and teach us about your plan. Make it real to us in our lives. And help us, Lord, to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.